Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor-in-chief here at Modern Retail. And today I'm joined with Candace Matthews Brackeen, the general partner at Lightship Capital. And I'm excited to talk just about the overall funding landscape, uh, what she's looking into, what she's focusing on, and just sort of dive into all that jazz. But hey, Candace, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So first, why don't you just give a little bit of background about who you are? People didn't hear this before, but you mentioned uh, when we were setting up that you used to be a flight attendant. So I'd love to hear sort of how, what led from point A to point B. So tell us your story. <laughs> tell you my story. So so yeah, so I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio. So come from a pretty humble upbringing. I moved to Cincinnati 20 some years ago to attend the University of Cincinnati, where I studied economics and statistics. Um, I needed a little bit of a gap year while I was there. Um, just, you know, I'd just blown through school the whole way and said, okay, I, I want some time off. And on my part of my break, I just happened to be like on the internet playing around and saw that Delta was hiring flight attendants. Um, I had never been on an airplane before. So I'm one of six kids. And um, I said, okay, well, I'm going to apply. They're never going to let me in. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I, I went to my first interview and, uh, on an airplane from Toledo down to Atlanta and, and got the job, ended up being the, uh, the valedictorian of my flight attendant class. Congrats. So they never but- asked you, they never asked you, like, have you been on a plane before or did they like that? That's it's so funny. No one asked. No one asked. <laughs> and I wasn't. Uh, you know, like, it's like that meme that's going around. Don't say anything. <laughs> you know, like I wasn't saying anything to anyone. So no, yeah, I, uh, I totally did that. So after, um, after I took my gap year, I ended up flying on the weekends. Um, so Friday through Monday, and I would take my classes Tuesday through Thursday, um, ended up with a degree in economics and statistics and then spent the better part of about 13 years consulting. So I went into small to medium sized businesses helped them to restructure their marketing and sales divisions, did that kind of over and over, hired new leadership and moved on. Um, And then about seven years ago, I got the startup bug like lots of people do. Mm -hmm. Um, I came up with an idea for an app for parents to help them connect and organize activities, uh, raised a few hundred thousand dollars in the local area, so in the Cincinnati area. And um, it was around that same time that Project Diane came out. So it was a study saying that less than 1% of all venture capital goes to a Black-led company, even less for women that look like me, so Black women. And I wanted to kind of like fix that issue because we were slowly running out of money and fundraising was really difficult. Um, and so I started a little tiny meetup group. That meetup group was mostly Black founders. And um it was from that group that I realized like that there's strength in numbers and network, just like my majority peers had. And that group of 11 over the last five and a half years has raised, you know, a little over a hundred million dollars for our own companies. Um, so once I ran out, I decided to launch an accelerator in Cincinnati for um, BIPOC, uh, people who identify as women, uh, LGBTQ founders, and those who are disabled. And we are in our fifth year now. Um, we had a little tiny micro fund that funded those companies through the program, 100K each. Um, and so since then, since 2017, we've run a 12-week accelerator, a one-week boot camp that we do kind of um, throughout the year, and an online pitch competition called Twitch Pitch. Once we ran out of money for our little micro fund, we decided to launch a $20 million fund. So last year, um, we announced, um, well, we ended up announcing a $50 million fund, but we started socializing a $20 million fund to, to funders. 
And now we've got Lightship Capital. We should close in on 50 million by uh, the end of Q2. And we're focused on the same demographic in the mighty middle of the country and investing in uh, consumer packaged goods and services, e-commerce, sustainability, artificial intelligence, and healthcare. So that's where I came from. And that's where I am now. <laughs> wow. I'd love to hear sort of how you grew the Accelerator program and how you approached that. What were what was your focus with that? Was it on growing the business fundamentals? Was it specifically on granting access to, to BIPOC founders so that they would have, you know, better pitching, like have work on their pitches? What were you what was sort of your focus when you were f- growing that? So I think in the beginning, we really just had the aspirational goal of building value in each of the companies. And we didn't necessarily know what to call that. Um, We are, you know, in Cincinnati, we've got like really great corporate assets like Kroger and Procter & Gamble and Macy's used to be there. And so like we had all those things. So my goal was like aspirationally, can I connect great startups to a potential exit partner or a great first customer? Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's the way we built the program. And what we've landed on now um, with the Lightship Foundation is we're building a value creation team around each individual portfolio company within the accelerator and then within the fund. Um, and that's very similar to like a private equity firm where you've got you know folks that are helping with tech, folks who are helping with design and brand, um, great people in marketing, and really folks focused on growth overall. And that's how we built the accelerator program. And um, I can say like the projects we do with the companies, we take kind of a project-based approach and do um, usually like a six to eight weeks week sprint on a particular project. And that's what's done really well for us. Mm. Um, and so that was the approach we took. It was kind of a, you know, a, we, we kind of were guessing aspirationally that it would work. And, um, you know, now in our fifth year, it definitely has helped. Got it. And so talk about uh, sort of, the genesis of Lightship? Was it just sort of that you wanted to raise more money than you had ever before? And sort of like, can you talk about how, how you are vetting companies? What, what, are, what is the general investment thesis? Yeah. I mean, nationally, we have an issue with funding black companies um, and really all minorities. So women, you know, mm-hmm. every, everybody I named. And so when we got to the end of our, let me see, so the end of 2018 going into 2019, we realized like, we had affected this group of companies, but like, is that enough impact? And we didn't feel like it was enough, right? You can't do like eight to 10 companies expect like the entire nation to change. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we decided that we wanted to do more. So we spent the majority of 2019 focused on like, like, how do you raise a fund? How does all that work? Like, there's just a lot to to do. And I fell into this in a completely sideways way. I'm not a, I don't have an MBA. I didn't work at a tech firm. I'm not your standard operator. Like I ran brick and mortar companies before this as well. And so we spent that year trying to really like figure it out. Um, And, you know, this is where we landed, which was a $20 million fund, which I thought aspirationally was the right number. Um, and we really just kind of overshot it. So it's an, it's a national issue that we were trying to solve. Um, and I think that long-term the number 50 actually works quite well. We can return, um, the funds, the LPs quite easily, I think, um, with just a few wins and, um, we'll do, you know, lots of others over the next few years. 
Talk about the LP process. Was it given that you were sort of teaching yourself how to go about go about raising a fund? Like, who are the LPs? What did you learn in talking with them? Were were people open to it? Were they not? I feel like I, I've heard so many different things specifically on like raising a fund, specifically for not just for like especially funds for more marginalized founders. And so I'd be interested just to hear about your experience with that. Yeah. Um, so I think when we first set out to do this, we thought we'd end up with a lot of kind of ultra high net worths. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, my my spouse, Brian Brackeen, who's also the other general partner, he says this quite often that when he started his tech firm in San Francisco, there were um, there was one angel investor for every three startups. <laughs> and then he ended up moving to Miami, Florida, and there were three angel investors for every one startup, right? And with angels and kind of women and people of color, there's an easy way to like have a one-on-one connection. And there's Mm -hmm. like a human element to fundraising just one-on-one. Once you start to go into um, institutional investors, you then have an entire committee of people. Uh, And that committee anywhere on that committee, you can have someone who's asymptomatic for bias. And um, so how do we solve for that? So, when we first started fundraising, we thought, okay, we're just going to go straight to these ultra high net worths, and that's what's going to work with us. Um, what we found is actually a pretty good blend. So in the fund, we have you know ultra high net worths, we have fund of funds, we have um, foundations, we've got some government, and so it's a really good blend um, of people. I would say we we lean more towards just institutional in general, and I think that is um, that's come from just the fact that well, we started raising pre COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so early in 2020, but then post COVID and post George Floyd's murder, we ended up with more institutional investors that were making a commitment to, of course, great returns, but with a social cause. Mm-hmm. We're not a social impact fund, but there are investors who are involved with us for a social impact reason. Um, and so going to LPs, so Delta Dental of Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana is one of our, our LPs. Centrifuse, um, which is a fund of funds, which is a collective of P&G, Kroger, and many others in the Cincinnati region is one of our LPs. And we have um, many others that we don't necessarily name all the time, but um, and big ones that we'll announce soon. Uh, but But mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of the blend so far. Who are some of the companies that you have funded thus far with with the $50 million round? And sort of how are you, how are you looking at them, vetting them? And I'd also be interested just to hear about a lot of what, what Light should focus on is sort of being a Midwestern-based company, and a lot of them are sort of in the middle of the country. And so how how are talking to your LPs about the, those these kinds of places that usually aren't in the the conversation for startups? Usually as people talk about San Francisco or New York, maybe Miami, but I feel like the Midwest is often left out of that. So that's a lot of stuff, but feel free to take it however you want. Yeah, sure, sure. (laughs) So, you know, when we first started fundraising and as we were kind of finishing our docs, we went to some of our mentors. Um, And one of those people is a guy named Mike Venerable. He's a company called Cincy Tech. Um, And then, um, you know, just many others to the country and gave us advice about like the initial thesis. And we, of course, wanted this demographic thesis and they're like, okay, well, we need to refine this down. Realize that right now, um, LPs are looking to like diversify their portfolios outside of the valley. Mm-hmm. Sure, we're doing great there, but 
can we start looking at things toward the center of the country? Like lots of us know about Steve Case, Rise of the Rest and Revolution and talking about kind of flyover cities. What if we start investing in those flyover towns? And so that's what we decided on. And the LPs really have loved that. Most of our LPs, um, you know, with the exception of one, um, are from outside of the state of Ohio. Mm -hmm. And most of them are from the coasts. Absolutely. 80, 80% are from the coasts. Um, and so they were looking to diversify. Now on the company side, we've made eight investments um, from kind of all over the place. All of them have a um, Midwest nexus. Most of them are located in the mighty middle. So just a geography slightly larger than, than the Midwest. Um, our first company was in, our first investment was in a company called Fresh Fry. Um, there are a sustainability investment. They're a plant-based pod that you put in commercial grade cooking oil at the end of the night and it cleans and purifies the oil. Mm-hmm. It extends the life of the oil for two to four additional days. Um, they're white labeled by Cisco um, and they're much different than the other um, competitors in the market. Um, the other competitors are, um, I don't know how they're cleared by OSHA, but <laughs> you pour <laughs> this like powder into hot cooking grease and the employee stirs it. And then they sift off kind of the impurities. Um, and this, you put it at the end of the night, you let it soak it all up, you fish it out in the morning after the oil is cooled and people stay safe. Um, and so they're in over 3000 restaurants started by a, a black chemist that went to the University of Louisville. Um, and I think that these companies exist kind of all over the country. Um, just great, smart people um, working in lots of different industries. So that's one of the eight um, our second investment was a company called Undock. Their predictive scheduling platform um, really is trying to tackle like fixing the calendar. Uh, we led their round. Um, we had some great co-investors in the round. So Bessemer Venture Partners and Lair Hippo um, followed us. And they have a few thousand users right now. And it's kind of like they've got like this crazy viral following. Um on, we have another company called Prove, uh, which is a progesterone ovulation test. Um, so progesterone is one of the key hormones necessary to um, achieve and then also maintain a pregnancy to actually like hold the baby in. And so that company actually was one of our accelerator companies a few years ago. They've been kind of like off to the races. They're in target stores and um, coming up with new products and it has hit some really great milestones on the, the revenue side. So that's a few of the eight. Got it. And so you mentioned earlier that especially after the angel round that you mentioned um, asymptomatic bias, which uh, is a great term. And I love that. Uh, Can you talk about just sort of how specifically with your portfolio companies as they are growing and that's the, you know, what you're doing, are are you working on sort of teaching them to sort of deal with that? How is that issue changing? Because I feel like I've been covering tech and VC for, I don't know, like nine years now. And that's it's a recurring thing that everybody talks about. And I feel like every three years, there's a big movement to like try and deal with it. But it still is a huge problem for like, especially the black community, but for many other communities as well. And so I'd love to hear just sort of what you're seeing change now and if how you talk about your with your portfolio company about that. Yeah, I mean, so there was this book called The Green Book a few like, you know, decades ago that helped black people to kind of navigate the South (laughs) Um, and just like where they could stay, what restaurants they could eat Mm -hmm. at and et cetera. And like, you know, if there was a sundown town, that's not where you want to be when the sun went down. I think that we work with our companies in a very similar way. Um, I think there is a green book of investors Mm -hmm. um, that you do and do not go to. Um, And then for those who aren't, um, we help them navigate. um, We help them navigate. 
So what is the terminology that helps? Like, do you even want to knock on this door? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because there's some people you're just never going to change their minds. Um, And then I think we're also teaching. So, you know, we have a current LP um, that, you know, was kind of difficult to kind of nail down. And they had an asymptomatically biased person on their investment committee that ended up doing a, um, a background check on us without our permission. It happens all the time. It happens to our founders. It's happened to us. Um, And you have to kind of teach people (laughs) through the process of like understanding like what that means to a person that looks like me, right? They may not necessarily have ever even thought of it. And they might actually background check every single person that they know without their permission, right? But what they need to understand is like, there are some communities that don't have the same relationship with law enforcement. Um, And so how do you kind of get over that? And so I think there's just a lot of teaching and grace that happens through this job. Um, Not only are we teaching our LPs, but we're teaching our founders, like how to have grace when people screw up um, and how to work through things. And then to also to like push things away when they're just never going to be okay. Um, But it's a process. And I bet it does come up every couple of years. I think that, um, if there's anything that 2020 has, has proven, and there's been a lot of things that has proved, um, is that like we can move forward from things and we can learn, right? I feel like for the first time in decades, we're actually learning together. Um, and the percentages show that there's more of us than there are them, right? There are more good guys than there are bad guys. And so eventually we will get to a place where there won't be so much bias. Wow. And so the the LP or the they when you realized this they understood that they had made a mistake that cuz I feel like that's that's wild that they like I, I feel like a lot of people do their things and then they say sorry not sorry but they, they actually listen to you in this circumstance. They did. Yeah, and they ended up investing. Um so yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't comfortable and it yeah. wasn't easy. And so people got in trouble, but they're all still there. Right? <laughs> that's that's the good thing, right? And and we learned. We learned from each other. Um, and yeah, it was hard. And, you know, like, I mean, I can honestly say like, I, I cried because, you know, it's, I don't like to be reminded. I want to be a VC. I don't want to be a black VC. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't want to be reminded of the black part all the time. I'm proud of my heritage. Absolutely. But like, why do I have to be a black VC? I just want to be a great VC more than anything. So so speaking of sort of the diligence process, I was reading uh, a story and it mentioned that you uh, you and your spouse, as part of the vetting process, sometimes live with founders. Is that is that true for when you're when you're vetting them? Can you talk just about sort of how you how, how you go about that, or you live near them, or maybe I misread, but I was I thought that was really interesting. That's that, so that's a funny story. So um, a few years ago in 2012, a young lady named Angela Benton started an accelerator called Numi out in San Francisco. So Numi Accelerator, um, one of the early investors in that program was Poor Capital and the, and the foundation there. Mm-hmm. And what they had was a three-month program where they t- took uh, founders and they'd live in a house. So it was like the real world met tech. <laughs> um, and she ran that program for many years. It was the focus of um, CNN's Black in America with Soledad O'Brien. It was very, very popular as a program. She moved it from San Francisco to Miami. Um, and as she was transitioning to her new company, I acquired the brand. We scaled it back to a much shorter program. And actually, she had scaled it back before then. But we scaled it back to a one-week program where we take founders. They all live in one house for one week. 
Um, and during that week, we, we kind of work through growth techniques uh, with the company. So the first day they're getting to know each other, the second day we're focused on um, artificial intelligence and, and advanced um, marketing techniques. We bring in some attorneys the third day, we do marketing brand the fourth day, and then the fifth day of the program, we bring in investors. And during that entire time, we break bread together. So we eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. I cook uh, several of the meals and the team um, does as well. We cater actually a lot. Um, and then we all clean up together, right? And you learn a lot about other humans when you eat with them, right? Relationships are formed that way. There were there are lots of great studies about what happens over meals. And that's what we do. We spend five days with our founders in a house through our programming on the Lightship Foundation side. And we've invested in many of those companies, um, even in this current portfolio. So not just on the accelerator side, in the current portfolio, I've lived with Jeremiah from Fresh Fry for a week. And I've lived with, um, I've lived with Amy Beckley from Prove. And, um, you know, so that happens all the time. And when we make a new investment into our companies, we invite them um, either to Cincinnati or to Miami, Florida, where we spend some of our time. And we spend a few days with them working on their growth techniques in the same way. Um, and so we break bread and eat dinner with them. And I think that it's important um, that we break down those barriers. And that's that's the way that we grow relationships with our founders. Have you, in cultivating that program, found any red flags in companies that you chose not to invest in when you were spending a week with them? Um, so... No, I wouldn't say red flags. Um, I would say that like we've, we've run into some people who haven't treated the entire staff well. Mm. Like, like though I am a general partner and I have a chief of staff, we are both equal, mm -hmm. right? I just happen to be the person that's good at this part. She happens to be the person that at this time is good at this part, right? And so they're, they're different. So people who don't treat people who are in service positions well, um, you kind of get turned off by that. Um, you can kind of tell if someone has a growth mindset um, during that sort of kind of period of time. Um, but no, nothing, nothing huge, but I would say like the way people treat each other and the way they spend their time. I love to see the early riser, right? Mm -hmm. Or the person that kind of stays up late or the person who respects their family and calls them at dinner time. Um, it's not all about like grinding it out, no days off kind of mentality. It's there's little things that you pick up. Um, and really, it's a vetting process more than anything. So I think we find the good ones and we go, OK, well, this one isn't what we would want to invest in. Right. That's more of what we've learned. You mentioned at the very beginning just with Lightship that you, you look at. CPG, you look at, you, you have sort of a wide array of different companies you look at. Do you have rubrics for, you know, we need to get one company that, that does this, one company that does that, or is it on sort of all sort of as an ad hoc application basis when this is the company you want to do, or are you trying to sort of fill buckets for the fund? So we haven't done that yet. I think that right now we're trying to build the best portfolio possible to re return capital to the LPs. Um, if I'm being honest on the demographic side, one thing we're focused on is the I and BIPOC. Um, and I think that a lot of people say BIPOC founders and they are like, oh, we invest in black, indigenous and people of color, but like aren't really looking for people from indigenous communities. Mm. Um, and so like we are really focused on building relationships um, with the 500 tribal nations that are here within the United States. There's a lot of work to be had 
they don't say things like building pipelines because pipelines were be- built by the white man. Mm-hmm. So they focus on waterways. And so like, there's a lot to learn. And so for us, our goal is to like really try our hardest to find indigenous communities that we can put into the pipeline and invest in. So put into the waterway <laughs> and invest in. So See, how- it's, it's, no, it's can- normal for us to say that, right? But mm-hmm. um, it's not accepted in their community. So how are you going ab- about, because the the issue with waterways or pipelines is that if it's not, if there isn't one, then it's so hard to find. So are, how are you finding these people or are there are there com- like communities of entrepreneurs in the indigenous community? And how are you sort of making intros there to sort of walk me through all that? Yeah, I mean, there are. There are lots of people um, building companies throughout um, the indigenous community. So I, I've met with um, some folks at a group called Generation Titans. Um, they're doing some work in the space. Um, I know that Comcast re- recently gave dollars to focus on BIPOC entrepreneurship. And with that, they've done a lot of the work with identifying um, the folks from the I in BIPOC. So we've been reaching out to those groups. We're going to be starting to do like actual office hours with groups. Um, but there's a lot of trust that has to be built um, the financial institutions throughout our country and throughout our history, the history of our country haven't really um, done well um, with those communities. So we have to like, we have to start building now, maybe not for our fund one, but maybe for fund two. Um, we'll try our hardest, but no, there there are, there's there are, and it's just a closed community for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to be able to kind of like navigate, build trust and then start investing. Um, but just like the, um, you know, black community and those people of color, like we, we are missing some things um, in kind of raising venture, venture capital. And some of that is like not understanding the language of venture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've been able to ramp up my kind of language and venture over the last six, seven years um, some people day one is today, right? So how do we teach what, a, you know, what happens with a term sheet and what you should be looking for? And they're great at building companies. Don't get me wrong. Like business savvy is like equitably distributed. Entrepreneurship skills are in every neighborhood. Um, but we have to kind of teach like the actual language of VC. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned this a few times, uh, sort of smattered around the conversation that, you know, people are learning now that there's definitely been uh, a big shift. I'd love to hear just sort of what what are the, the big longstanding changes you see in the investment sort of landscape, like eight, nine months later? I feel like a lot of things happened in June and July that were reactions specifically from like uh, VCs who suddenly realized they they had never even thought about this before. They were being asked to be held to account. So, what do you think that some of these are actually longstanding changes, or are 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 things sort of going slightly back to normal? Or and what w- w- what are sort of the the glimmers of hope, or not the glimmers of hope that you're seeing? Yeah, I think that um, you know, lots of people made public announcements mm-hmm. about the things that they were going to do, and some folks stood those. Um, kind of funds up relatively quickly. Um, and some didn't make announcements and set up funds quietly. Mm. Um, I think that both, both are great. Um, it's just whether or not they've, uh, they're going to kind of like continue it. I know that a few groups said we're going to focus on kind of like, um, we're going to focus on the black community and then scaled it in a different direction said women and people of color. 
right? And so like, are we then really fixing the issue or are we really just continuing down the same path? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I have hope and I would say I have that because, you know, we, we made an investment into one of our companies and we're, it looks like we're actually going to hand it off to another black GP, which like for me feels huge. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it wasn't because we were like looking, it's because it happened and because they were there. And that, um, that gives me hope. And I had a panel yesterday with a group and I met another black woman GP that I'd never heard of. And so like for a long time, I could name the 20 of us. (laughs) And so for me to like, meet this woman. Like I just, all of a sudden she started talking and she was like speaking my language. And I just like was so happy to see her. And so I think that, um, there's hope for the future and that, you know, some people made their proclamations last year out of fear Mm -hmm. of being outed, like the me too movement. And some people did it for the right reasons. And some organizations, we have to really remember that they're the sum of their parts, like a, like a, a corporation is a sum of its employees mm-hmm. and change kind of happens sometimes within because of an employee resource group. Um, you know, orgs like some of the big five tech companies like Facebook, some of the changes there that have happened internally is because the employees were pissed, right? Mm-hmm. Because they said, no, we're going to get our pitchforks and we're going to like, we're going to say, no, this is, isn't happening. And so I think some of the proclamations really happened because the employees said, no more. We want more for our community. And we're not going to keep doing this work for you unless you are willing to give back to us too. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I have hope that that change will continue. And of course, people will stop um, and we'll forget. But I think, again, there's more of us than them. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing a shift or a change in either the volume or the types of companies that are pitching you? Oh, um, the volume. <laughs> the volume. Well, that's good. The volume. Um, there's so many. Like, I think because we've all gotten away from like coffee meetings and like mm. in-person things, like now we've got this borderless issue. So like everyone is coming. Um, but I will say the quality um that I'm seeing is higher um than it was before, too. So I think I'm just seeing um more and better just constantly, um, which is fantastic for us. Yeah, that is. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. Candace, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kale, very much. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week. Bye.